I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Today we're going to talk about the issue of the Bible having been changed or lost, twisted, corrupted, distorted, you know, that the scribes throughout the centuries, like, basically rewrote it, and the, and the Bible that we have today is totally not the one that was originally given, the text that was originally given by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, these various guys, um, and the other Beatles. Now, for a long time, skeptics and heretics have attacked the Bible based on the ignorance of believers, on the issues of what we're going to talk about today, the transmission of the text, how it went from original writing to the Bible you have in your hands now. And us simply being unaware of these things, of, of how this happened, has allowed skeptics to say whatever they want. Because when they know more than you do on the topic, you can't really argue with them about it. And that has happened. Um, hopefully, this is going to fix that. This is hopefully going to fix that. But I want to do it in a way where we're going to approach real scholarship. And I'm indebted to a guy named Daniel Wallace, who's a real, genuine, good, good scholar on these issues, as well as a few other guys, uh, James White and some others as well. But then I want to take this scholarship and bring it down to our level where I don't have to like learn Greek to understand the main point of this stuff, but yet the facts that I'm basing it on are, are rock solid. That's the idea. Frequently, when the skeptics attack Christianity and it comes to the origins of the Bible or the canon of the Bible, as we've been talking about, or, or the text itself from the time of its writing until now, they often lie <laughs> or, they're, or they're repeating lies. So I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a, a big time YouTuber, guy, a guy named Hemet Meta, and this guy is, he's called the Friendly Atheist, and he produces YouTube videos attacking Christianity and talking about how glorious atheism is. Um, you know, he'll put up a video that, that acts like he's going to bash atheism, but then he talks about how awesome it is. It's, it's very, um, very cool. But <laughs> what he said about our Bible is that the way that you got the text that you have in your lap now was... Quote, a big game of telephone. This is his description of how you got your Bible. It's a big game of telephone. So you know how telephone works. One of you in the back of the room, you, you, you start a phrase, and then to the next, to the next, to the next, and then finally we hear the phrase at the end, and then we compare it to the original, and it's always totally distorted beyond redemption. It's, it's, and it's messed up even on purpose. There's only one time in my life where we played a game of telephone with the students in our high school ministry, and they actually got the phrase right all the way through, I think it was 20 people. And it was when one of them started the phrase with, Pastor Mike peed his pants. And then somehow that phrase made it all the way across faithfully. But no other phrase ever has in a game of telephone in the last 2,000 years. Um, Okay, this is completely untrue. Uh, Hemet Meta is just full of large amounts of atheistic baloney at this point. Um, another statement that you may have heard from the scholarly Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code, he says, um, it's, it's quoted in his book, but in his book it's quoted as coming from an authority, and he says his book are, is based on facts, even though it's a fictional story. So, so this is presented as though it's a fact. The Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Okay, this is... This is also not true. It's not true, but it's popularly believed. And then, of course, there's things that are mixed truth with lies. I saw this on businessinsider.com, which is obviously the kind of website that would be producing anti-Bible videos. (laughs) But yet, there it is. 
And it says this, all we have are copies, the first of which were made hundreds of years after the event supposedly took place. Not true. But this is popular, popular belief that's going on. So we want to we face those things. Other times though, and this is actually a bigger deal for us, the skeptics, they speak truth generally, but they speak it in such a way so as to twist your understanding of what happened. Let me give you an example. Bart Ehrman, who rarely makes a mistake when it comes to the history of things, but often couches it in a way that is deceptive to people. Well, he says this, and I'll quote in his book, Misquoting Jesus, Who Changed the Bible and Why? He says this. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals, or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later, and these copies all differ from one another. In many thousands of places, as we will see later in this book, these copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. Possibly, it is easiest to put it in comparative terms. There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Now, most of that is pretty much factually true. But it's completely deceptive as to the actual reality of the situation. And that's what Bart Ehrman's really particularly famous for. For instance, what if you heard that sometime earlier in the past month or so, I was slaughtering pigs. Mike Winger was just slaughtering pigs. He was just slaughtering large numbers of pigs. And when someone said, Mike, why are you slaughtering pigs? I said, just to gain experience. Now, you would think, Mike, you're a terrible person. You just killed him for experience? You, you, weren't, you weren't doing this for meat or for a, a, a business? It was just, just for experience? And then finally, I add the missing information. I say, yeah, well, I was playing Minecraft. So I was killing pigs to gain experience. And you're like, oh, it was a video game. They weren't real pigs. Okay, so the missing information changes the whole scenario. And what we need as Christians is we need the missing information. I'll give you another example as it approaches the Bible. People will say the Bible has been corrupted. This is a common phrase, a common accusation. Now, in a scholarly sense, when it comes to the text, you know, the people who read the Greek and read the Hebrew and check out the manuscripts and the papyrus and all that, these people will use the word corrupted, meaning something different than what you're thinking when you hear corrupted. To them, corrupted means any variation or alteration in the text, no matter how minor. No matter how minor. Any variation or any difference of any kind. Even if it's like the spelling of a word. We spelled it one way in this text, but when this guy copied it, he spelled the same word slightly differently. This has been corrupted. You see how then you're like, well, the Bible's been corrupted. You're like, but wait a minute. That, I, you know, why do you keep using that word? I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah. I can give you an example of this from real life. In the King James Version, uh, when one of the early productions of the King James Version was called the Adulterer's Bible. Well, nicknamed that later on. And what happened was, in this early run edition... They printed several hundred copies where the typesetter, because they had the printing press, right? The typesetter had messed up, and in the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, he left off the word not. <laughs> that would be a corruption of the text, right? But did anybody, like, change their theology? No, they went, whoa, wait a minute, let's fix this. We realize these hundreds of copies here are in error, and the original reading must be thou shalt not. This, was, this didn't confuse anybody, but it would be considered a corruption of the text. 
So there's there's two things that we want to look at. One is there is um, hyper skepticism, and that's that's the Bart Ehrman side. There, he's like the fundamentalist skeptic. Is like the, <laughs> like the strong like like really one sided, only see it my way kind of skeptic. And it's that's something we want to avoid. Modern hyper skepticism. If if you can't believe the Bible is pretty much the way it was when it was written, then you can't believe anything in history. Because there's more evidence for this than there is for any other ancient text. So now you can't believe anything, anything in history. Was Alexander the Great a real person? Who knows? His works have been corrupted through thousands of years of transmission, you know. Like you can't believe anything about anything. But then the opposite thing that we're going to have to avoid, which is the tendency of some, is modern hyper-confidence. Well, we'll call it that. Where not only do I think I have the word of God, but I think that there's no such thing as translation issues. Like going from Greek to English doesn't, doesn't cause any str- struggles of any kind. Where there's never any sort of, hmm, I wonder how I should translate this. There's no problems there. Or I think that there's no textual issues. That there's no such thing as having two manuscripts that are ancient, that are copies of the same book, that have a slightly different reading on a verse. Or even a very different reading on a verse. To think that that doesn't exist at all would be, would be the... Basically, that sets us up for failure because then we're thinking that, um, okay, if you show me one text that has one variant reading, now that my whole case crumbles, my faith in the, in the word of God crumbles, but that, that shouldn't be the way it is because it's our ignorance of these issues that the skeptics count on. So I want to talk to you guys about why we can and should believe that the Bible we have today still is the Bible and do it from scholarly perspective, even though I don't pretend to be a scholar, but using their works. Um, it's very easy to get lost in these details. I realize that. You may feel you're already lost, but I'm about to try to explain it to you. <laughs> My goal is to stand between the scholars and the rest of us and try to like like bridge the gap, hopefully. That would be the goal because that's where we need more than anything, I think, um, is that. So first, I'm going to teach through this stuff, and then I'm going to take questions. If you have questions, I encourage you to write them down. Hit me up afterwards, and I will try to address those, and you should save those. I may answer them as I go. Um, hopefully, I will. But please ask the questions, because you may have a question that someone else needs the answer to as well. So, let's fix the ignorance issue. Since that's what they're counting on, is that we don't know what they're talking about. Let's, let's fix that. Most of the attacks, when it comes to the, the text of the Bible, is Matthew the same as Matthew wrote it between now and 2,000 years ago when he penned it? Um, most of those types of attacks, they focus on the New Testament. So we're going to focus on the New Testament. I'm not going to spend time defending things people don't attack. That doesn't seem to be very useful use of my time. So, you're going to need a general understanding of what happened to the New Testament documents after they were written. So, step one, step one in this process is the apostles wrote the New Testament documents. Have I lost anyone yet? No? Okay. I know. I'm just kidding. Um, so, anytime in the, from the, mid, the middle of the first century till the end of the first century, this is when all of the New Testament books were written. They were all written in a very short, relatively short period of time within one lifetime, basically. And they were written in different locations, and then they were written to different audiences, and then, and then that's basically what we call the autographs, or the originals. You know, at Matthew writes it, maybe he even changes it as he's sitting there looking at his own text, but once he sends it out, we call that the original. That's, that's the autograph. That's, that's, what we're, that's what we want to get back to. That's what we want to say, do I have today what he wrote then? Now, those autographs, they don't exist anymore. We don't have any of them. Uh, we don't expect to have any of them. They're dust. They're written on papyrus, which typically doesn't last more than 100 years. And they were probably handled quite a lot, copied quite a lot, used a lot. So they probably didn't last all that long. 
So that brings us to step two. So we have the originals, which we, which we don't actually physically have. And then we have the copies. Step two is they're copied. These copies spread out and they were in turn then copied. So I might copy Matthew as I'm visiting a friend and then I, and then I get my copy over to my city and then someone copies it from me and someone copies it from him. And, and so you get lots of copies, many, many, many copies. Um, in fact, it was copied all over the place. We have very early copies of the New Testament books from Egypt. Think in your head, get your world map going. You have Egypt, Syria, Israel, Europe, like spread out all over that whole region of the known world. We have copies going on. In fact, early Christians were so bookish, they were such a book-focused people, that they popularized the Codex. The code, and you might be like, what's a Codex? Well, a Codex is a special form of writing, not like a scroll, but it's a book. It's where you have writing on both sides of the pages, and then it's bound together, so a Codex is a book. The modern book was popularized by Christians starting in the first century. They were using it in large numbers before the rest of the world did. And it was a couple hundred years later, a few hundred years later, when it really became popular in other environments. Uh, probably because the Christians wanted to copy large amounts of material cheaply. And so that, the Codex was the best way to do that. Now, what we want to know about this step two moment, when the early church is copying the texts, they're copying Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Hebrews, all this stuff, is that <clears throat> there's no central authority in the world that is controlling these copies. You know, so maybe you make a copy and then you head to your hometown and then they make copies of that. And then meanwhile, the same copy you made a copy from, someone else over there takes a copy to a different area and then they make copies of that. But nobody was able to gather all these copies together and edit them and make them make only one a special one special version that then had no variations. That's actually a good thing. That's actually a good thing because we want for this, you'll see, we want as many copies as we can get so we can look at them and find the original within the copies. So it's free transmission. That's unlike the Quran. The Quran went through something called the Uthman revision, where this guy Uthman, he gathers together certain groups of Quran texts. He has others that disagree with him. He burns and destroys them. He goes to people, says, give me your text, and takes them and destroys them, and then says, here's the, here's the Quran. It's the Uthman version. And, and, and so nowadays, all the Qurans read identical because there's, they, they only go to that one Source, but we know before that there were there were variants, but we, those those variants don't exist, so you can't compare the two to say which one was the original. Um, well, with Christians we can't. So we have copies. The question we have now is, do the copies we have give us what was in the original, or is the Bible utterly lost to time? Now the conclusion we're going to have is that we still have the Bible, but before I can show you that, I need to give you the way the atheists and skeptics tend to put this information as they share half of the information. So we're going to talk about a thing called a variant. A variant would be like if, if, if I copied this sentence, Mike, you know, Pastor Mike peed his pants, and then there's another one that says, Pastor Mike, he peed his pants. Now you've got a variant. These are the same phrase, basically, but there's a slight variant. One says he. Now, mean, meanfully, there's no difference. There's no real difference between these, but that's, that's what's called a variant. Now, any difference between one of one copy or another is considered a variant. Um, do you have any idea how many variants there are if you gather all the Greek and, and, and different manuscripts together all at once, how many variants we might have amongst all of them? A thousand? Ten thousand? It's actually, realistically, the number is about 400,000. 
There's about 400,000 differences between these different manuscripts. That number freaks people out a little bit. And skeptics love it. They smile. They get a big Cheshire cat grin on their face. Yeah, that's right. If I was lost, you know, 400,000 variants. Um, the, now, just so you can understand the weight of this many variants, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's about 138,000 words. 138,162 in the Greek. So you've got more variants than you do words. So does that mean that every word of the Bible is in question? We don't know even what one word means? Well, that's what you would think. Because that's where the skeptic stops their information. In order to offer a distorted, a, a twisted understanding of history, they, they stop their description right there. But let's go a little further. So we have to understand two things. And this week we're going to focus on one thing for the rest of the time. The quantity of variants. Why are there so many variants? Next week we'll talk about the quality of variants or, or what, what types of variants are there. And we'll look at specific examples that you can find in your own Bible, that kind of thing. Um, so if we're going to understand why there's so many variants, we have to understand exactly how many, how many manuscripts we have. Now, a manuscript is a handwritten copy. So, any, you know, like this is not a manuscript. This is just, this is a Bible. It's a printed Bible, but it's not a manuscript. A manuscript is a handwritten copy. Now, of handwritten copies, we have quite a few. Of our Greek New Testament, and that's the language it was written in, was Greek. In the Greek, we have, as of December 2014, that was the most recent number I could find, there are 5,824 manuscript copies of the Greek New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that every one of these 5,000 plus copies are copies of the entire New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. Some of them are as small as a credit card, like P52, a really important one, that's really small as a credit card. Others are very long. The average size of these variants is about 200 of the variants of these manuscripts is about 200 pages. So, the, so you typically find very long ones. The earlier you go back, the older they are the smaller they tend to be, which is understandable because they've just wear and tear and they fall apart and things get damaged. New ones are being discovered all the time. We're recently getting more and more new ones coming out, especially as they move into the Soviet Union looking for these things because the Soviets like hid these things and just, just left them there, which actually ended up preserving them nicely. <laughs> so so we're, we're sort of finding that communism can, can actually be helpful to our case for the, for the Greek um, Bible. Altogether, if you gather these 5,824 Greek manuscripts together and you count them and put them in pages and just count them together, you have, guess how many pages of Greek you've got? 1.2 million. That's an awful lot. That's an awful lot of Greek. Now, these manuscripts have just the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. Now, how, how, how big is Matthew through Revelation? Well, it's not 1.2 million pages. What we have is the New Testament reproduced over and over and over and over again in these ancient texts. Now, do you start to see how the task of like a textual critic is to say, all right, well, let's look at this version of Matthew and this version of Matthew and say, which one was the original? That's the job that they have. That's just the Greek, though. There's other languages that the Bible was quickly translated into. We have Latin manuscripts. We have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. We have other languages like Syriac, Coptic, Gothic. Did you know that was a language? Arabic <laughs> and other ones. There's an S we don't even know how many there are because some of these are languages people don't speak anymore. And so we, we haven't really collated all of them. Somewhere between five and 10,000 copies of the New Testament in other languages. 
Altogether, that's over 20,000 manuscripts of our New Testament that we can, handwritten, that we can look at and compare. This is a very good thing. We want as many manuscripts as possible. Think of it this way. If I put up a text on the screen right now and had you guys all copy it, well, let's say only one of you was in the room. So one of you makes a copy, and then we get rid of the original image, and I look at the copy. How do I know if you got it right? I don't. I got one copy. There's no variance. There's only one copy. There's no variance, but I have no confidence that you got it right. Let's say 10 of you copy it. So 10 of you copy it, and now I gather your 10 copies, and I compare them, and I see that this person, oh, you missed a line. Like your eyes must have skipped a line as you were getting tired as you were copying. But these, everybody, you know, the other nine, they got that line in there, so we trust that that was originally there. Now let's say I had 10,000 people copy it. Do you see how my confidence in the original gets greater and greater with the larger number of, plus the variants get bigger because you got more people copying. So a large number of variants is a result of a large number of manuscripts, which is a good thing which is something we're very happy about. Now, I want to compare this to what some other um, Greek writers have. If you go to the average classical Greek writer, they have, let's say, and they probably don't, they probably have like five or six copies, but let's say there's 20 copies remaining of the average Greek writer, because we just want to be generous in our estimation here. The average Greek writer writing from, say, around the first century time, maybe before, maybe a little after, they have about 20 copies of their work remaining. Now, if you stack that up, so for a Greek writer, you've got about, four feet of text of their writings. Now, if you take the New Testament manuscripts and stack them up, all these 20,000 plus, how high do you suppose that stack would go? <laughs> Mars. <laughs> it would be a mile high. A mile high of manuscripts to dig through, trying to verify the original readings of these different things. Now, you can imagine, this is a major job. Like, you want, you want that job? Some of you are like, I want that job. We'll start doing manuscript studies and start learning the languages because that, if you're excited by that, you should do it. But yeah, that's, that's what they do. So that's the thing. We have tons of copies because we have tons of confidence now about what the original is. Um, how old are our copies of the New Testament? That's the next question I want to look at. How old are our copies? We're just kind of surveying what we've got. So we've got 20,000 plus manuscripts. And how old are they? Well, older would seem to be better, right? I mean, you'd think that if there's some sort of changes in the text, the older it is, the more likely that's going to be more faithful text because it went through less copy cycles. Of the 20,000 manuscripts we have, about 15% of them are from the first 1,000 years AD, and then the rest, 85%, are from, this, from after 1,000 AD. Now, that makes sense. The, 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 the more recent they are, the more likely they are to survive. Uh, plus, as it keeps getting copied, you'll get more copies later on than you had originally. That makes sense. But that's a pretty good number, 50, 15% of them. Now, the average classical author waits at least, in fact, let's put that image up on the screen so you guys can look at this as I'm talking. You can try to decipher it. The average classical author, they wait at least 500 years from the time they originally write until we have the first fragment of their work. So they write something, and 500 years goes by before we have one little piece of what they wrote. Not a, not a full copy but a manuscript, a copy of a portion. They wait about 500 years. The New Testament has full copies by 300 years after it was written. The entire New Testament, full copies before even fragments are showing up for other works. In the New Testament, we actually wait just a few decades for the first copies. 
just a few decades. Let me give you an example. P-52 is a really interesting artifact that we've, we found. It's a papyrus. It's, that's why it's called P-52. It's a papyrus number 52. That was the 52nd papyrus catalog. Th these were all recent finds in the past couple hundred years. And this completely changed the discussion of the New Testament, this tiny little credit card sized piece of papyrus. Now, what happened with P-52 is... Up until about 1934, European scholarship, the, the scholars in Europe, the smart brainiacs in Europe, they decided that the Gospel of John had been written way after John died. It was basically a forgery. It was written like late in the second century, like 180. It was, John didn't write it. So basically this undermines Christianity, that statement. But they were convinced because of a guy named Bauer, the Bauer hypothesis. The modern day Bauer hypothesis guy is Bart Ehrman. He's got like a, a new version of that Bauer hypothesis going on. But, but what happened was in 1934, we found a little fragment of the Gospel of John called P52, Papyrus 52. On one side, it had John 18 verses 31 through 33. And on the flip side, it had the same chapter verses 37 through 38. Now it has writings on both sides flipped over. What kind of writing would we call that? Yeah, it's not a scroll, it's a codex or a book. You know, it's a, it's a codex though. This is, and he's like, whoa, this is, this is an early Christian writing. So then they find that, that it's John. He sends it to four different papyrologists who examine it to find out from the handwriting and other things. How old is this little piece of papyrus? All four of them come back with similar information. Three of them say at the very latest, it's 150. It's probably closer to 100. That's three of them say that. The fourth one says, I think they're wrong. I think it's in the 90s. I think it goes back all the way to the 90s. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that copies have to be made after originals, not before. So what happened is all of the European scholars, the big brainiacs, I mean, they're smart guys up in Europe, had decided that John was written after this stuff. And this little tiny credit card piece of paper, as, as Dan Wallace says, caused two tons of German scholarship to go up in flames. <laughs> and so I think that that's funny. Um, but nowadays, the internet is full of, of scholarship zombies, right? They raise from the dead. There, there's no power in the argument, but it's still presented. I have heard myself several times that, that John wasn't written until the late second century because somebody hasn't really done their research. They've just got 200-year-old scholarship that they're living off of, <laughs> and they're posting it up on Wikipedia or wherever, wherever it is. So it, it helps us to be educated and learn about some of these things, you know, so we can say, yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> um, so what do we have with P-52? We have a papyrus that is, I mean, uh, one scholar said the ink must have still been wet on the Gospel of John when this thing was copied. It's so early. It's so early. We have within a few decades, I mean, it, it, even if John was written in the 90s, at, at a late date, you've got within a couple decades, you've got this thing being written, this, it's being copied and being preserved and being kept. It's just, that's amazing. So the... The example that we have um, up here, um, actually, you know what, let me come right back to that. I want to share a couple things with you first, and then we'll come back to that graphic. I'll just let you memorize every little bit of it as I'm talking. <clears throat> Other ancient texts, they have issues that the Bible doesn't have, and this makes me happy. <laughs> Tacitus, who's a very important Greek historian, a Roman historian, excuse me, he wrote Greek, of course, um, we're, we have him writing from the first and second century, and he writes some very important stuff. He wrote something uh, that was basically analysis or the annuals, a year-by-year -year account of Rome. So we're learning about the, the history of Rome. 
we're missing about two-thirds of his work. It's very spotty. But he's considered one of the very important guys. But we're missing two-thirds of the stuff that he wrote from that one particular work. Now, this is not the case with the New Testament. See, that's, that's common. It's common to be missing these things. The New Testament, we're not missing anything. We have too much. You see, we have every verse. This, this is the scholarly opinion of, of conservative scholars. Yeah, but they say we have every verse. What, the thing we're missing is what we need to do is go in there and say which verses don't belong because we've got such an, a large amount of data here to work through. <clears throat> this is the, the, the variations, um, the, the different variants. They're just the natural result of having so much data to work with and it's not something that should freak people out because no two manuscripts in our Bible uh, Manuscripts, none of them are identical. None of them are identical. And if you were to hand copy anything, you're not going to find that any two are ever identical. They're never identical. Variation here is a good thing. It proves that there was no revision. It proves that we can go back and we can get back to the original. So now if you look at the graphic that we've got up here, um, if we compare the New Testament, you see the yellow on the screen, that refers to how many manuscripts there are. So look at, say, Sophocles over here. There's... Um, of Sophocles, we have 193 existing copies of Sophocles that are left over. It's 1,400 years from the time it was originally written until we find our first copy. Now, as you can tell, he's one of the good examples. Whereas the New Testament, it's 40 to 70 years from the time it was originally written until we get our first copies, and that large yellow blob represents the number of copies compared to other ancient literature. And this shows you something that's really, really important. Skeptics are inconsistent. They act like we have no confidence about the New Testament, but yet they believe Alexander the Great existed. We have a thousand times more evidence for Jesus than we do for Alexander the Great. We have a thousand times more evidence for the New Testament than we do for the average work of antiquity. So if you can know that Pliny the Elder said something, then you can know that Jesus said something. If you can know that Herodotus wrote something, well, then you can know that Matthew wrote something. But the skeptics are inconsistent. They don't throw out all of history. They just target the Bible, and then they won't talk about the rest because it, there's an agenda here that's not being honest. And I think Christian scholars, oftentimes, they, they're trying to be scholarly, and they're trying to be um, thoughtful, and, and, they, and they want to be gracious, so they don't want to just call it what it is. Like, you're just... It's just your unbelief bleeding onto your scholarship when you're trying to reject the New Testament. The New Testament is the earliest attested document in all of antiquity. The earliest attested document in all of antiquity. You know who said that? Bart Ehrman. Because half the time he's attacking the Bible, the other time his quotes are actually supporting it. But it proves his bias. It depends on his audience sometimes. Uh, one In one debate, uh, his debate... Uh, Opponents said that he had, there's good Bart and bad Bart. <laughs> like, there's good Bart where he gives good, solid information, and bad Bart where he sort of twists that information to create a, a, a distortion of reality in the mind of the person listening. Now, let's say that we didn't have any of this stuff. That nice yellow blob was gone. And we had none of these New Testament manuscripts. Would we be without any sort of voice telling us what the Bible really wrote? No, because you know what we have? We have the church fathers. And the church fathers, these guys basically, they had, they had sermons that they wrote out, and they were very verbose. They talked a lot. And they wrote and they quoted from the New Testament all the time. Gathering these people's writings, we have 
a million quotes of New Testament verses. A million quotes. This is not the copies. This is completely separate from the rest of the stuff we talked about. There's a million quotes. Now, there's about 8,000 verses in the New Testament. 8,000 verses. And there's a million quotes. How many times can we reproduce the New Testament through their works? The vast majority of it. There's only a few verses that aren't quoted by them. What we really have when we look at why there's so many variants, it's because we've got like a a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and we have 10,100 pieces. This is how uh, James White puts it. I don't know where he got that from. But I I like the picture and it very accurately reflects the truth. What do we have? I mean, if you had a, a jigsaw puzzle, would you rather have 9,000 pieces in your 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle like we do maybe with some of the other ancient works where we're just missing stuff? Or would you rather have an extra 100 pieces so that after you're finished putting it together, you go, okay, and these ones, we don't need them. Well, that's what we have with the New Testament. That's what we have with the New Testament. So our point is, if we don't know what the New Testament says, we don't know anything from ancient history at all. If we're skeptical about what the New Testament says, we should be skeptical about everything else. And the quantity of variants that we have in the New Testament is a good thing. This is a great situation. And this is a hard point for people to get sometimes because just the idea of a variant, it, it's freaky. It, it's like, But we're not talking about the original having multiple versions. We're just saying, yeah, copyists make mistakes. So we look for common readings. We look to see what kind of mistakes they made. We try to say, okay, there's the quantity of variants. That's why there's so many. Now let's look at the quality of the variants because this doesn't answer all our questions, right? You understand why there's, why there's so many, but still, you'd like a little more details than that. When you say variants, what do you mean? So I want to talk a little bit about the quality of those variants, and then I'll start you guys on this road this week. Um, next time we meet, <clears throat> I want to talk, to talk to you about it from a different angle. Um, so we'll finish this you know, <clears throat> in our next meeting. So the question here is, can we trust those scribes? Can we trust those scribes? Those silly scribes. That they're, okay, so the conspiracy theories begin. Um, Bart Ehrman, he says the following in his book, Misquoting Jesus, on page 177. Listen to this quote from probably the leading skeptic of the Bible in the world right now. It is probably safe to say that the copying of early Christian texts was by and large a conservative process. The scribes, whether non-professional scribes in the early centuries or professional scribes of the Middle Ages, were intent on conserving the textual tradition they were passing on. Their ultimate concern was not to modify the tradition, but to preserve it for themselves and for those who would follow them. Most scribes, no doubt, tried to do a faithful job in making sure that the text they reproduced was the same as the text they inherited. Barterman admitting that the purpose of the scribe was to keep faithful to the text. That was the goal, because that's really what we'd be worried about is scribes that are intentionally twisting and distorting the text. Even that wouldn't be a problem for us, because we'd have a bunch of other scribes over here not doing that, and it would show up in the text, and we'd be like, that's a bad copy. So let me talk about these variants. 400,000 variants. 400,000 variants. It's really helpful when you find out that over 99%, over 99% of these variants do not matter. Let me explain. I'll give you an example. There's something in the Greek called a movable nu. Nu is basically the Greek letter in. N. So you make that n sound with nu. Well, the movable nu is a lot, we can understand this in English. It's a lot like the English letter in, how I would say an apple, a dog, and 
angry apple. I mean, you know, you, you, you have the movable news. Sometimes the in is there. Sometimes it's not. It depends on whether or not the next word starts with a vowel. That's very similar to the Greek. Now, sometimes, in fact, frequently, you'll have a copy where the new is used. The movable new is put on there. But then you have another copy where it's not. So this copy says an apple and this copy says a apple. Well, there was no standardized spelling, and so this is probably just a regional thing that they just happened to, to write it this way in this area versus that area. Over here, it's from California. There, it's from Kansas, you know, so they just write it differently. But that is a large number of our variants. Movable news. Now, do you imagine the movable new affects the meaning of the text? You literally can't even translate it into English. It's so inconsequential. That's the movable new. Other times, it's word order. In fact, the movable new um, and spelling variants and word order account for the vast majority of variants that are in the text. Now, Greek is different than English here. Okay, so if I said to you, um, I want to drive you over to the park in English. Now, if I mix up the word order, I've really butchered the sentence. I want to drive over you to the park. See, now this, this is bad news. In English, that really matters. However, the way Greek is structured with, with English uh, endings that are kind of like in Spanish, how they have different word endings for verbs and stuff like that, you could mix up and muddle up the word order and it won't change the meaning of the sentence. So it's not really, it doesn't matter. You can't, you can't actually translate that into English. For instance, um, if I was to say, Jesus loves Paul. Um, well, there are 16 ways to say that in Greek using the same words for Paul and the same word for Jesus and the same word for love. Same words, just different word orders. 16 ways to say that in Greek. How would you translate that into English? Every time you would translate it, Jesus loves Paul. In other words, word order doesn't make any difference once you go to the English, but you'll find these texts have different word order, exact same meaning. So movable news, word orders. Another one of the very common things <clears throat> um, is spelling. There was no standardized spelling back then. You would just find people spelling things differently. It wasn't that they were spelling it wrong. There just wasn't really, you have to spell it this way. You know, it's, it's basically spelled the way it sounds. And one person does it one way, one does another. Maybe they had an accent over here, so they spelled it slightly differently. Spelling changes count for a lot. For instance, every single time in your New Testament where you see the word John, J-O-H-N, right? Well, that's, that's the Greek Ioannes, and that's either spelled with one N, one new, or with two news. Every single time you see the word John, there's a variant where it's with one and there's a variant where it's with two. Now, what does that change? Absolutely nothing. Now, we have just dealt with a very large number of those 400,000 variants. And you realize that it's blowing smoke when they try to make a big, number, a big deal about these numbers. <clears throat> so then we get to, um, th those, are, those are variants that are not meaningful or viable. That's the fancy term for it. Me they're not meaningful, meaning I can't even translate the words into English any differently based on this variant. And it's not, it's not uh, viable, as in, uh, plus, none of these are really competing for the original text to change the original text and how we should translate. Um, the third largest category of variants are something that's called meaningful but not viable. Meaningful but not viable. That, that means a variant like where there's a sentence that it, it changes the meaning of the text. Like this, this variant. It definitely changes what this text means, but it's not viable in the sense that there's no way this, is, this goes back to the original reading. 
So it's a variant, but we can quickly just count it. Like that was just that one scribe. He accidentally messed up. So I'll, I'll give you an example. A lot of them are they're obvious errors. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, we have Paul writing and he says, we were gentle among you. We were gentle among you. And that's, that's a Greek word, apioi, gentle. We were apioi among you. One late manuscript, it says, we were hippoi among you. Hippoi, not apioi, we were hippoi among you. That would be translated as, we were horses among you. We were horses among you. There is no chance on earth that that represents the original reading. It's really late, it's only in one manuscript, and it doesn't make any sense when you read it that way. It's clearly a slip of the pen. Oops, you made a mistake. You know? And hippoi, apioi, maybe it's just a oops. It was a mistake that they made. About 25% of the variants that we find are meaningful. They would change the text, but they're not viable. There's no way this goes back to the original. There's just no way. So then we get to our last category, meaningful and viable variants. About 1% of variants are both meaningful and viable. Now, out of 400,000 variants, how many variants would that be? About 4,000. About 4,000 variants are meaningful and viable. Meaningful and viable. So 99% do not impact the meaning of the text at all. Now, now here's the thing. If you know, as a scholar, Mr. Bart Ehrman or whoever, you know that 99% can be thrown out immediately, why do you say 400,000 instead of 4,000? Except just to confuse people. Except just to try to erode the foundation that Christians have in their faith in God's word and the scriptures. So what matters here? Well, of those 4,000, many of them, um, they're meaningful, viable, but they end up not being uh, important for other reasons. We'll get more into that next week. But there end up being about 1,500 to 2,000 viable, meaningful variants that we actually want to look at and, and consider about these things. Uh, it's meaningful. It, it means that there's about a, a meaningful, viable variant every six pages in your scriptures. This is why a lot of manuscripts is a good thing. Now, we, now, now you get the textual critic. They go and they look at all the manuscripts and they go, okay, uh, Hebrews 1.6, this reading, this reading, this reading. Like, let's trace them back. What reading is in most manuscripts? What reading is in the earliest manuscripts? And let's try and figure out what the original reading was. So variations are an expected thing. It's a natural result of copying. Uh, sometimes it's a slip of the pen. It's a duplication. They, they say the same word twice, twice, and then they keep going. Uh, sometimes they're missing a word or missing a letter or missing a line. They can actually tell, looking at the text, oh, this guy, he was copying whole words at a time. This guy, he was copying one letter or two letters at a time. Because his mistakes are nonsense mistakes, where he, he, he missed an I, basically. You know, he missed one letter. Whereas this guy, he, he messed up a whole word. And so you can actually tell the, the copyist. And so you go, okay, this makes this a better manuscript. This makes this a less reliable manuscript. We'll have one manuscript that's more about calligraphy. The guy was more into his fancy writing. Another guy who was just very serious about trying to copy very, very carefully. And so we can, we can see this. You can see in any manuscript where someone was starting to get tired. <laughs> And so this is the work that they do. They try to figure out what was the original reading. But these variations, they help us. Um, what's at stake, though? What's at stake amongst these 1,500, 2,000 variants that we should then look at and really consider? What's at stake? Well, let's, let's take it this way. Let's say that you took one version of these variants and a different version of these variants, and you, had, and you put in two Bibles. And then you got theology out of these Bibles and said, what kind of Christianity do we get from this version versus from this version? 
Do you know that these variants do not touch one single serious doctrinal issue for Christians? Let me say that again. We don't change one thing that we believe based on these variations. Now, it's possible that over the course of time, we would have lost major passages. We could have lost Romans 1. We could have lost John 5. could just be gone. Or it could be that the variants are so wild that we can't tell what's going on. But where there are variations, where there are questions, where there are tough issues, we don't have one doctrine or issue of what we believe at stake. Not a single one. So why then do the skeptics present it like we don't even know what we're supposed to believe? They're being deceptive because they have an agenda against Christ and against God. Now, do they intentionally have that agenda or are they under the puppet strings of somebody else? You know, that's a different issue. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, but it's a reality. It's a reality that this is, that here's Christians going out there, scholarly Christians trying to simply get more information out there. Let's explain the whole story. And then there's the skeptics explaining a third of the story and then ending the book so that you don't know all the details so that you get a distorted version of what, what happened with the Bible. So not a single core issue is at stake for us. Take any reasonable reading you want. It doesn't change Christianity in any significant way. Now, this is interesting because Bart Ehrman, he's our chief skeptic of the time. He's our modern-day ultimate Bible skeptic. (laughs) This should be like a TV show. (laughs) It could all compete, you know, Bart Ehrman and these other guys. All right, but here's what he said in in his book, Misquoting Jesus. uh, After they printed the book, they printed an appendix where he answered questions and this was added to his book shortly after it was printed. It was, became a number one bestseller and all that. One of the questions was this. After all the variants that he believes in and his basically bashing the Bible for the whole book. Why do you believe, they ask, these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? So why do you think that Christianity itself is in jeopardy of being like falling apart and maybe, maybe it isn't what you thought it should be? Here's what Bart Ehrman says. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Because he's being honest. Which is why they later removed that question from the appendix. Because the reason why people like Bart Ehrman is because they can quote some of what he says and use it to attack the Bible. He's the favorite of whether it's uh, the Jehovah's Witness who wants to attack our, 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 our New Testament and say that it's been corrupt, the... the the, um, the, the Islam, Islamic apologists, they love Bart Ehrman. They love Bart Ehrman. So these various you know, non-Christian groups, they like to quote him, atheists. <clears throat> but they quickly removed that question from the appendix because of that. I remember hearing an interview where Bart was asked, what would the Bible look like if he, with his, with his abilities, gathered this to text and made his own version of the Bible? What would it look like then? And they were sort of excited, like, what would it look like? Would Jesus be like, he wasn't God, he was just a man, like, uh, like Peter was Judas and the other way around. Like, oh, what would it be like? Was, was Jesus married? He had kids. Like, tell us, what would it be like, Bart? And his, he answered that it would pretty much look the same as the one we have now. See, because he leads people on with these skeptical attacks, but then in conclusion, he leads them to believe things he doesn't believe, put it that way. He leads them to believe things he doesn't believe. So we have what was written. It is in the manuscripts, in the essentials. And that leads uh, Dan Wallace to say, his conclusion is, that he believes that every, every single verse of scripture is still existent somewhere in these massive amounts of texts that we have. And the job of the textual critic is to look through and ask the hard questions. Well, if I've got, you know, a thousand copies of such and such, 
let's use these to figure out what the original reading was and let's create Greek source texts that then people use to translate our Bibles that we use today. So then that becomes a, a Greek compilation of, okay, here's what we think are the reliable readings, and that's where we get our Bibles today from. King James, New King James, that's from one reading, then there's newer newer Greek compilations as they discover more Greek texts <clears throat> that they, um, the Nestle Allen and the UBS, where they basically have the more modern translations that are based off those. <coughs> now let me give you one one last thing, and then I want to just tell you what we're going to do next week. Um, <coughs> sorry. Some people say that the, that the New Testament was radically changed in that first few hundred years because we know for sure it wasn't radically changed after that because that's when we have so many manuscripts. We know that it pretty much was preserved. And they say it was radically changed. Well, <clears throat> what's neat is that all of our earliest manuscripts are recent discoveries. And in, in the recent last 150 years, we've discovered about 130 papyri, 130 ancient, the, the most ancient stuff in that stuff. When you take the readings of the text you get from those papyri, you would think, these would be, if, the, if these are radically different than the stuff we have, that we already had, then, then it shows that there's been a lot of change, right? But just in the last 150 years, these 130 papyri have not produced a single new authentic reading. Not one text, not one verse of the Bible has a new reading. Oh, it really says this. All it does is con- has confirmed that, oh, it was this group of manuscripts that had that correct reading. It was this group that had the correct reading. That's all it has done. So we can be very confident in the, uh, in the faithfulness of the text. If I can summarize, the Bible we have today is, in a complicated way, the same Bible <laughs> that we've always had, that we've always had. And even if you did take the variant readings, it still wouldn't change Christianity, which I see as God's hand preserving our faith so that even if you got this copy or that copy or that copy, you still get the same faith. You still get the same faith. So we see God's hand involved in that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So next week, I'll, I'll answer questions in a second. But next week, what we're going to do is, um, next week won't be nearly as um, boring. But, <laughs> but what we're going to do next week is we're going to actually go over specific passages in the New Testament where there's some questions. Because that's what I would want to know. That's what I want to, I'm like, okay, well, what about those 1500 variants then? Tell me where I might see them in my actual text of the Bible. And I'm going to deal with some stuff that might even be hard for us to deal with. They don't change our faith or anything like that. But if we have had a simplistic understanding, like as though, as though like Matthew, Mark, they all wrote in English and it went straight from there to the printing press and then it was mass produced, like that's not exactly what happened. And so we, we, will, uh, we will face the music, so to speak, about some of the tough passages. And we'll realize after we've done that, that there's a handful of difficult passages and the rest of the Bible is pretty much untouched. And so we'll look at those difficult passages because here's what the atheists do. They bring up the handful of difficult passages and act like that represents all of the New Testament. So they leave you hanging. They leave you hanging. And that's just not the case. So we want to have an intelligent and reasonable faith and trust in God's word. God has preserved his word, as we will see. Um, So does anyone have any questions? Um, you know, I, I couldn't honestly tell you for sure why they, why the New Testament is criticized like that, but not the Old Testament. But I could give you a couple of guesses. The Old Testament had a much more rigorous um, scribal story in its background. Plus, the data is just further back, and so there's less to attack. Plus, uh, if you wanted to undermine Christianity and you attack the Old Testament, you still have to deal with the clear 
teachings of the New Testament. So I, I think it becomes a battleground for spiritual reasons, but also because um, um, of more uh, more text-based reasons. We, we, we have more information about the New Testament, so there's more to talk about. But also, get, you know, a couple hundred years back, they didn't have these really ancient papyrus. And so that's when they started attacking where they saw a weak point. Oh, these were all written later, they're forgeries, this kind of thing. And so now we have recovered ancient papyri to bolster our trust and faith in God's word just in time for the skeptics, you know. <laughs> and so good timing on that. Yeah, so that would be a couple of the reasons that I could come up with um, for that. Yeah, Kirk. Yeah, attacks on the Old Testament, a lot of them are dealt with with the Dead Sea Scrolls because you have um, revelation that there is a faithful a faithfulness to the text because we have copies like say of Isaiah from before Christ was born. So you, you can't have added Isaiah 52 and 53. We actually dealt with that when, we were, when I was doing the prophecy section on that passage in particular. Um, but yeah, but yeah, but plus, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this in response to skeptics attacks. So I'm not going to attack the Bible from every angle I can find uh, as much as go, okay, let's look out there and respond to the attacks now. Because in 100 years, it'll be slightly different attacks. And then it'll be slightly different attacks if the Lord tarries, um, which hopefully he won't. I'm hoping he comes back sometime before January. Yeah. Um, no, I don't believe any of the books of the New Testament were found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Just Old Testament books. There were books that were timed around the New Testament times. But the Essenes, the people who actually did the Dead Sea Scrolls and wrote them, they were, a, they were like, a, like a weird offshoot of Judaism. And they were an apocalyptic group. They believed in a bunch of weird stuff. They weren't Christians. So they weren't going <clears> to <throat> hold a Christian text. So that's why they wouldn't copy them. Um, it's actually better for us because then you can't say that Christians meddled with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because they weren't Christians who produced them. You know, so we couldn't have meddled with them. Um, so that's actually good for us. But they were a group that, among other things, they believed that... Um, they believed in celibacy, so they wouldn't have any children. So I'm not really sure how they died out, but uh, yeah, that would be one of the reasons right there. Yeah. So those are the rare exceptions. Um, <clears throat> how did some papyrus survive, you know, 2,000 years now almost, and others not? Well, it, it just it just happened to be stored in the right environment. Uh, it happened to be set aside in the right place, and then. Like P fifty two, we have it's, it's the size of a credit card. You know, it's like a tiny little thing. So, but but typically speaking, you wouldn't see that. Like they they recover old papyri from places like mummy masks. Um, the, the Egyptians would do the the poor Egyptians. They they might do paper mache. They grab some text and they paper mache it together and create a mummy mask and then overlay it with something that looks like gold, and then they bury the person. Well, now there's a debate going on whether or not when you find a mummy mask. Can you, can you give it a chemical bath and pull the papyri apart to find ancient works? Like you might find something from Homer. You might find something from the, from the Old or New Testament. And, um, and some people are like, no, you're violating the, the, the culture of the... I'm like, it, whatever, it's a mask. But um, <laughs> the value of the text is obviously worth more than the value of the mask. But, um, but yeah, so, so now that environment, that paper and shea environment, would, would mean that a lot of the texts are, are kept away from oxygen and things like that that might degrade them. So it, it kind of depends on the the Dead Sea Scrolls were kept in the Dead Sea the Dead Sea, which is an extremely salty environment, and it's very dry and arid, and they were kept inside clay pots, clay jars, and so this was like a perfect environment for preserving these things. Even then, they had to be very cautious, you know, when they when they opened them up.
<clears throat> uh, first century. The codex, uh, Christians started using the codexes in the first century. I, I don't know who invented the codex. I'm not sure if anybody does or not. I haven't looked into that. Um, but Christians were using them in the first century. So the thought is, and I haven't researched this, but the thought is that I've heard from uh, Daniel Wallace, his, his thought was that, the, that they wrote these on scrolls and then they were copied on codexes so that the originals weren't on a codex. Um, don't know all his, the codex is the book. C-O-D-E-X, yeah. Um, probably there. Okay. Back in 2011. <laughs> yeah, it probably, maybe is P52 the oldest back in 2011. There was a, there was a scholar who was actually doing mummy masks and they came across a, a piece of what they said was Mark and they, and they were, they had dated it to the first century and there was a lot of hoopla about it, but, it, but the work never got published. And so the internet's still like buzzing, like, well, what's the deal with this? What's the deal with this? And I, I haven't been able to find the results of that. So I'm not saying that, that they found that and that it's been confirmed because they didn't, they didn't publish it yet. Uh, when they publish it, it'll get a designation. It'll be like P73 or P104 or whatever, you know, it'll get a name. Um, so to my knowledge, the, the earliest is P52. But there are, there's others that are found also from the second century that are in that same time. And you can go to um, the center... Oh, gosh. Uh, if, if Google search Daniel Wallace. See, the great thing about what he's doing right now, they're going all around the world and they're digitizing high-quality photo images of all these ancient manuscripts and saving them because right now like, ISIS is on a rampage to destroy everything. And so they're, they're going and they're trying to digitize all these. This is going to really help textual critics because then they don't have like this old microfilm version of, <laughs> of something. They can actually look at a high-quality digital image and they can manipulate it to look at it even better. Um, so they have a listing of manuscripts on that site uh, of papyri and things like that that you can look at. So there's others that are from like, I, I looked at one that was from about 150 and it was from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so we have other ones that are also from the second century. Um, the older you get, the smaller they'll probably be. And some, but some of them are, some of them are full. It might have just been like John in a book mm -hmm. Or it may have been that it was part of a larger one and that's all that remains is a little piece. The, the earliest full copies of the New Testament we have are from the, th the, the third, or from about 300 years after the authorship of the book. So the, the fourth century. Yeah, that's the first. And I, we'll talk, I don't know if, how much we'll get into that because I don't know how much it matters for the sake of what we're doing. It's interesting stuff. But Codex Sinaiticus is a really good one. Codex Vaticanus is a really good one. That one was, was kept hidden by Rome in their libraries and they wouldn't let anybody look at it for hundreds and hundreds of years and just recently they <clears throat> relatively recently they let people look at it so now we can we can look at it and it's extremely early work it's really really early I think it was the mentality in Rome that this isn't this stuff's not for the laity this isn't for the people this is you know they didn't even want the Bible translated into the common tongue they wanted it to stay in Latin because Latin's the best and which is weird because, you know, when, uh, when it was translated into Latin, people criticized it. Like, how can you go from Greek to Latin? Like, Greek's the best. And then Latin, how can you, Latin's the, the language. And then you go from Latin over to English and stuff. And then they're like, now, you know, you have to have the King James Version only. That's the only version. You have to have the English one. That's the best. And the, these are not the best ways to think about these things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Cool. Any other questions? 
Good stuff. I hope I did justice for the topic. I hope that you have, you know, you have enough details to know that the summary is true. That's my main point, is that you get enough details to know that the summary is true. Um, we have great confidence that the text we have reflects the original readings somewhere in its pages, you know. And that's not, a, that's not like throwing question marks in the air. We can actually go to the texts and using, using good, reasonable methods, find the original reading. And uh, we'll talk more about that next time, and I'll give some examples and some challenging passages as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that you have preserved it as, as you said you would. As you said you would. And uh, it is a complicated issue because it deals with many thousands of pieces of papyri and, and other things. Um, and so we... We pray that you give us the patience and the wisdom to dig into this stuff so that we will not be unarmed. We want to put on that belt of truth. We don't want to be unarmed when the enemy attacks and when skeptics come and attack. Lord, we want to be able to share the truth with them in love so that they might see the, see the Bible for what it is, that it, there's no grounds for saying that the Bible has been lost. There's just no grounds. Of course, they'll keep saying it. So may we be thoroughly equipped. In Jesus' name.